welcome to the Gospel of John. For the last several weeks, we've been going through the Old Testament. And in many ways, the Old Testament is a preparation for what comes in the New Testament. So today, we're going to jump into the Gospel of John in the New Testament. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's the fourth Gospel. <clears throat> we're going to go through a lot of stuff today. So bear with us as we go through the history, we go through the um, we go through the Greek, we go through the setup for why the Gospel of John was written. Um, I'm going to just start right off the bat with all of it, and, and we have a lot to get through today. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is whenever we read the Bible, the things I want you to think about as we read, as you read, are <clears throat> when was it written? When do we think it was written? Now, this might surprise you, it might not surprise you, the um, dates for when they were written were not recorded. <laughs> you know, it was not said that I, the Apostle John, wrote this in uh, 70 AD, right? There's that doesn't happen. But we can derive a lot from when it was written by what is included in the text. What is the, the what are the topics being talked about? Um, some very key pieces of information will come out in the text, and we'll learn that in a few minutes here as to when we think this was written and maybe when it wasn't written. Who wrote it? That's, that's the big one. And, and again, when I say who wrote it, I'm not asking for a, a specific name. <clears throat> now, it would be nice if I knew that specific name. John Smith. I am John Smith. I wrote the Gospel of John. Okay, That's not necessarily what I'm looking for. What I'm looking for is who is the kind of person who wrote it. What is the background of the author, right? Um, <clears throat> Who was it written to? The audience is just as important. Who wrote it? Who did they write it to? And, and was it a group? It was usually a group. Sometimes it was an individual, but meant for a group. All of these things need to be kind of unpackaged. And then why it was written. What was the point of writing it? What was the author trying to get across? And what is God trying to get across by this being written? Um, it's probably important to mention that a lot of material written about God <coughs> In antiquity, we don't have anymore. Probably most of what was written about God we don't have anymore. But certain pieces of literature that were written down were kept and were circulated and were reproduced within different communities, both Jewish and Christian communities, for a reason. And we're going to talk about that today. So what we have left is really just a very small slice of everything that was written in the past. And we need to ask ourselves, why does it persist today? There are theological answers to that. God wants it to be preserved. There are human reasons for that. Humans thought it was important to, to maintain and preserve. So at first blush, these may seem obvious to you. In some cases, they may seem superfluous. Why are we even asking those? But I want you to be thinking about those. All right, let's just jump right in and talk about the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, how many people have read it? At least most of it. Okay, great, awesome, we're done. You guys know it. We don't have to do this. <laughs> you know, uh, let's start by by recapping the gospels. What does gospel mean? Good the good news. The you go on. The good news, good tidings, the gospel. The good news uh, is what? What is the gospel? Elevator speech. Everyone looks at Steve. <laughs> What's the good news? This should be simple. Jesus is the Messiah. Okay. He came, was born a virgin, of a virgin, died, buried, resurrected. Yep. And salvation is for who? All who believe in him. All who believe in him. Just Jews? No. Just Christians? That's a trick question. <laughs> the good news is Jesus, God's only Son, is a fulfillment, just like you said, of Scripture and prophecy, and He is available for all men and women and children who choose to believe in Him. And people who believe in Him have this thing called salvation. What does salvation mean to a Christian? Eternal life. Eternal life. You will not die. You will not die spiritually. Your body may die. Temporarily, But what happens in the end? On Judgment Day, something very important is going to happen to all people, whether they believed or not. What is that? 
come back. Jesus comes back, and what happens to your old body? You you get a new body. Your body, there's a resurrection of the dead. And it is universal. And a new body, or kind of an old new body, will will be made. And for those who believe in Jesus, what will happen to that body? Be taken up to heaven. Okay. Taken up to heaven, you'll be in paradise. Some people say that heaven is earth. It's a reborn earth. But the point is this. What will happen to that body? Can it decay again? Can it fall ill? It's immortal. It's immortal. You cannot die again. You have an eternal body, an eternal life. And is there sadness in this paradise? No weeping, no tears, no suffering. That's a pretty good gospel. I'd say that's good news. That's great news, actually. Right? So we have four Gospels, so-called Gospels, which all essentially tell a narrative of the story of the life of Jesus, okay? which separate themselves from the other writings of the New Testament, in which are mostly either letters written, um, primarily by the Apostle Paul, um, some by Luke, the evangelist, um, and there is an apocalypse, which is a telling of the end times, or a revealing. Apocalypse doesn't mean end of the world, it means a revealing of something hidden, And that is the last book of the New Testament. But there are four so-called Gospels. There are three so-called synoptic Gospels. What does synoptic mean? Kind of tell the same story? Yeah, they're similar. They have overlap. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all kind of have the same stories. There are differences. But in general, they use some of the same source material, and they provided their own insight from their own eyewitness testimony to make what is very similar passages. So when you go back and you look at primarily Matthew and Luke, you will see a lot of parallels with each other and with the Gospel of Mark, which was probably one of the source materials for them. John is different. John is different. So the first thing I'm going to talk about today is what sets it apart from the synoptics? Well, it's set apart. It has different material than Matthew Mark, and Luke. What else does it have? Tell me, for the people who have read it, how does it differ? John was the apostle Jesus loved. Ah, this is a really good one. said so. It turns out that the Gospel of Mark does not refer to the disciple John. Every time that character is a part of a conversation, the author of John doesn't refer to him as John. He refers to him as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's a real big key indicator to who wrote it. What else do you know about John? He was the brother of James and the son of Zebedee. Yes. And so, <clears throat> one of the uh, original twelve yes. disciples. Yep. Who, when Jesus refers to James and John, he refers to them as a nickname. Do you remember what that is? Sons of, Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. Puyasante. <clears throat> Why do you think Jesus would call them Sons of Thunder? Does this imply meek? mild-mannered, quiet, mouse-like people. What does that imply to you? A little Maybe raucous. A little hot-headed? A little, hot-headed <laughs> a little ruckus? Yeah. Got a little spice in their life? Yeah. These are, these are very passionate people. Weren't they it, one of the four fishermen mm-hmm. with Peter? So, you know, their lifestyle kind of would have... <coughs> ah, there we go. Very good. Okay. So, fishermen in Galilee. <clears throat> so here's our map. Here is the modern nation of Israel. Galilee is a district in the north of this country. Samaria is in the middle. Judea is in the south. These are Galilean fishermen. What else do we know about the Gospel of John? What about his writing? First hand. <coughs> First hand account. 
it makes no qualms about this. Now, I am going to say this. It's very important to remember this. None of the Gospels are autographed. What do I mean by autographed? They don't end you know, written by John. Yes. None of the Gospels have the person who wrote it listed directly. Now, but you're going to go, Brian, my Bible says John at the top. <laughs> Obviously, that's not an autograph. This was added years later, maybe hundreds of years later, by people who at the time, and I put a lot of weight around what people during the period said. Right after the first century, and let's look at our timeline here. Here's 1 AD. There's my marker here. We think that Jesus lived somewhere. He was born around maybe 4 BC. Who really knows? Somewhere around the start of the millennium. Right around, this would be 50. This would be about 30. We think that Jesus' ministry took place in a very short window of two, three years, give or take, maybe four, right around the year 30 AD. <coughs> um, only in the second century, so this is the first century, really early in the second century, the church fathers, um, uh, the apostolic fathers, who kind of were the disciples of the disciples, are already writing that this gospel was written by John, the apostle, who was one of the 12 disciples. I put a lot of weight around that. I feel like that has a lot of credence to me. That was a community that knew the people who were alive during this period, and if they were lying about it, certainly people would have called them on it. But they all are in agreement. John the Apostle wrote this. So I believe that that's true. First-hand account, how much weight do you ascribe to first-hand accounts versus second- or third-hand accounts? How reliable are they? Much more. We're all nodding our heads. I think we can all agree. First-hand account, first person on the scene of an accident or on the scene of a crime, I'm going to take their testimony, as humanly imperfect as it may be, over someone who heard second or third hand about what had happened. As we all know, stories tend to <laughs> evolve very rapidly once someone is not an eyewitness. First-hand account is really important. What is, I, I want to go back to this, fishermen in Galilee, what else do you know about the author, John? What kind of person religiously is he? I, I should have known you would go there. I'm going to write this down. Who wrote it? When you say mystic, what do you mean by that? Oh, it's hard to define. Okay. Into the spiritual aspects. and the Yes. Here we go. I'm going to say... Absolutely 100% agree here. This is so different. This gospel is much more focused on the spiritual not physical. And I'm going to ask another loaded question. Who does, what does the author think about Jesus? Is Jesus a great prophet? Is, is Jesus a man? He went out of his way to, to illustrate that Jesus is God. Yep. Yes. I mean, more this is so key. than all of the other, well, all the other, the other three Gospels. <clears throat> He's not like God. Almost yep. like he had a little more inside ah, information. Okay. Jesus kind of is a little bit aloof mm -hmm. in how you know, when they're asking him, not you know, are you the Son of God? Yep. I am who you say I am. I mean, yep. You know, he kind of just. But John really, I mean, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Excellent. And that's how he starts it off. This is exactly it, and we're going to talk more about this Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, <clears throat> But I want to get back to the, so what John's background, and I'll just kind of fill in the gaps here, it is obviously written by someone who has extensive knowledge of the Jewish faith. So <clears throat> it is very likely this author is a Jew. This corroborates, based on what we're reading here, with who we think John is, an apostle or disciple of Jesus. Not only is he a Jew, <clears throat> but he wants to explain Jewish euphemisms to people. So if he's trying to explain Jewish euphemisms, Jewish customs, Jewish words to his audience, who was it written to? Say it loud. People who aren't Jewish. There we go. And we would call those people what? 
Well, Gentiles. Gentiles. And <coughs> non-Jews, yep. Is that the only person that they were written to? Well, it would be to Christians yep. as well as okay. non-Christians. Yes, and so I think it's comfortable to say that his audience also includes Jews because uh, as the author himself trying to explain that Jesus is God, he uses a lot of, of references um, to the Old Testament. He uses references to kind of the nature of God. And because of that, it seems he's trying to connect with his own people as well. When was it written? This is a good one. Universally, scholars agree that the Gospel of John is the last Gospel to be written. So, I know this is going to sound weird, and, and if you've been in my class before, this is, this is going to be a review. Jesus didn't come to earth with the Bible in his hand, with the New Testament. He didn't just show up, get baptized in the Jordan River, and say, congratulations, you all have just witnessed that I am Jesus, the Messiah, and here's the Bible for you to read. Okay? <laughs> now, go do your homework. In fact... This is a, there's a whole long thing. Most of what's written in the New Testament wasn't written down until much later. And there's a reason for that. The people who Jesus was preaching to at the time and his disciples were preaching to, he was preaching the kingdom of God has come. It is here. The Greek, engus, it means it has come. It is here now. And so the, the race was on to tell as many people about Jesus as, as humanly and, and spiritually possible. Only... 20, 30 years later, did people realize that maybe we're in this to the long haul? Maybe Jesus is not coming back in five years. He ascended from the Mount of Olives. You know, let's, let's just call it 33 for argument's sake. People believed 33.5, he'd be back. You know, they went and got lunch and they came back and they're waiting, right? Now, as the years move on and the gospel spreads, it well, the gospel meaning the oral tradition, right? People telling people about Jesus spreads. It becomes clear that maybe Jesus isn't coming back immediately, so we need to start writing this down. And another thing that's happening here is what? What's happening to the original 12 disciples at this point? As we get out here. They're dying. And most of them are martyred murdered for their faith. Now, as the original 12 disciples, and, and you know, um, Matthias will call him uh, one of the 12 as well because Judas is dead, as they start to die, it becomes clear, we need to write all this down because we don't want to lose what has happened. And we have a somewhat literate Mediterranean region in which people know Greek as the common language. It's, it's kind of decided that people are going to start writing this down so people know about it. Somewhere in the mid- I would say mid to late first century, the synoptics start to get written. No one exactly knows when. So if anyone tells you what year they were written, they're full of it. No one really knows. But the synoptics have clues as to when they were written. They seem to not have been written before 70 AD. And what happens in 70 AD? That's a really big deal. Destruction of Jerusalem. Destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire. The Jewish civil war gets out of hand. The Jews, or I'm sorry, the Romans have finally had enough. And they come and they don't just kill a bunch of Jews. They burn Jerusalem to the ground. And what is a really important thing that is in Jerusalem at this time for the Jews? Temple. The temple. The temple is destroyed. It seems as though the synoptics, the writers of the synoptics, don't allude to it. They don't seem to to talk about it as if it is a fact that has already happened. And so it is thought that most of these start to get written down before the destruction of the temple in 78, which would have been a huge deal, right? Everyone would have known about it. Another clue here is in how they refer to certain geographical landmarks. Now this is a minor one, but it's actually kind of important. All of the synoptics refer to the Sea of Galilee as the Sea of Galilee. Now we all know about the Sea of Galilee, right? Jesus walks on water, these are where the fishermen Jesus' disciples are fishing. John doesn't refer to it as the Sea of Galilee. He refers to it as the Sea of Tiberias. What? Why would he refer to it as that? It turns out that is a Roman, very important Roman person, right? Tiberius, one of the Roman emperors. It turns out that no one talks about the Sea of Galilee. It's renamed as the Sea of Tiberias, but it is renamed in the last quarter of the first century. If 
the author of John had referred to it as the Sea of Galilee, his audience would have known what the heck he was talking about. Oh, you mean the Sea of Tiberias? Oh, okay, yeah, I know what you're talking about now. Clues like that tell us the gospel was probably written late in the first century, and it was written after the synoptics. Now, scholars are also universally in agreement that the author of John had access to the synoptics. We know Matthew, Mark, and Luke are already being circulated during this period amongst the Christian churches. But John doesn't have any of that material in here. Why do you think that is true? Why wouldn't he want to confirm what has been written? You guys didn't think you had to think so hard on a Sunday morning. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you, let me fill in a little gap here. It seems as though John and let's say here it was written last quarter of first century. <coughs> why was it written? I'm going I'm to give you two seeds here and then we'll talk about why it doesn't overlap the synoptics. The first is there were, there were essentially two movements going on in the world at the time that it seems as though John is responding to. The first one is in the early Christian community there's a, there's a rising of this movement called Gnosticism. Does anyone know what Gnosticism is? Yep. Exactly. See, you know the answers. You just have to. And no one sees your faces, so you can say anything you want. Uh, you know, I could be wrong. It's a subset of Christianity. Like a subset, this is a sect. A sect of Christianity. This is, a, this is like a cult. Now, as you can imagine, when, when truth comes out, it tends to be that people can pervert the truth, either accidentally or deliberately. And we all know this from politics, right, from the news. This is spin, right? It's the spin zone. Spin zone is a human thing. Everyone does it. It turns out there was this huge push in the beginning of Christianity towards what's called Gnosticism. Now, it's, it's esoteric. Gnosis. Gnosis. Uh, Gnosis means knowledge, but it means secret knowledge. It turns out that cults arose just as quickly as standard Christianity. And what I mean by that is a group of people said, no, no, no. You can't get salvation just by knowing about Jesus. We've got secret knowledge, right? Now, if you join our group and you count yourselves as among our followers and you do everything we tell you and you give us all of your money, then we'll tell you how to get saved. Okay? What does that sound like today? <laughs> right? This is classic cultism. This is a cult. Saying, listen to what's written down. Don't listen to what other people are telling you. You come talk to our experts and we'll tell you what the truth is. Name your cult today. Name your cult and I will prove to you that it is in the same vein as Gnosticism. Obviously, one of, well, one of the big tenets of Gnosticism is this, and this is a big one, that the only good in the universe is spiritual. Spiritual equals good Material equals bad. What is material? This stuff. Physical matter. Stuff I can touch and bite, right? Ow, I wouldn't want to bite myself. <laughs> Things I can interact, feel the wind, the air. I can drink water. What was Jesus? Was Jesus a ghost? <clears throat> you could touch him. You could feel him. Gnostics said the Jesus you know was not the actual Messiah. Gnostics said, in actuality, and there's all these like different God beings, Jesus himself, who was the true Messiah, was just the spirit that came down and inhabited the body of this man you called Jesus. But it was kind of this tension because all material is actually evil. The spirit of Jesus, and this is where it all is contradictory, is that spirit being was the only true Messiah. And when Jesus went to die on the cross, it wasn't the Messiah who died on the cross. It was this guy, this flawed human being that you call Jesus. The true spirit Messiah left his body before it died. Where do you read any of that? In the Old Testament or in the New Testament? Nowhere. 
And so this, these lies that were springing up, and these were very popular at the time, was one reason why John, the author, wants to contradict this. He wants to make the case, and we said it earlier, <coughs> not just physical. Jesus is God. Je John makes this case. Jesus is both a spiritual God and he is a physical man. Both. John wants to contradict this. The Gnosticism is not true. It is a cult. It is a lie. And if anyone comes to you and says, I've got, this, I've got the secrets for, for salvation, and if you come talk to us, he's like, don't listen to them. Don't believe them. There's a second reason <coughs> that this is written. Greek philosophy. Okay, don't worry. Don't get scared. I'm not going to go so deep here. <laughs> I don't even underst I fully understand it. But I think it's important to realize that Christianity and Judaism weren't the only players in town at this point. Remember, we're talking about a Mediterranean region, a Roman Empire that is full of Greek philosophy, right? The Romans took Greek philosophy. They took architecture. They took their beliefs. They even took their religion. There's a big movement in Greek philosophy at this point focused around logos. Logos is a Greek word that means word. But it's like love. It means a lot of things. So, you know... If you ever watch a preacher or, or you know someone on YouTube and they go, the Greek word for this means that. Well, yes, it probably means that plus a hundred other things. I just want you to realize that logos means word. It means wisdom. It means reasoning. It means the ability to compute. It means a hundred different things. But in this case, there was this philosophical religious concept called logos. This idea that the universe is permeated by this spiritual reasoning that all humans have inside of them. And these group of philosophers called Stoics, and again, I'm not going to get too into this, believed that if you were to take this logos in, you could be a reasoned, thinking, higher order organism, not, not subject to all of the passions and lusts and desires of animals. You were above the animals because you could reason and you had this logos, but this logos is more than just reasoning ability. It's really like the force. If you want to think of like a Star Wars concept, the force permeates all of the universe and all people have some connection to the force. In some ways, that is, that is this idea of logos. The problem is that the Greeks, a lot of the Greeks said, every human has this logos inside of him and thus has the capability to be kind of a god. And maybe they wouldn't say the word god, but they would say you could kind of rule the universe through it. John, the author of John, is trying to say that is, that is bunk. That is bunk. There is, in fact, true wisdom, true knowledge in this universe. But guess who that is? Guess where that comes from? He's countering this by saying this comes from God above. Okay, we're done. We're done with the college stuff, all right? Why was it written? The author of John is trying to make the case. Jesus is both man and God, and that's okay. God himself has this eternal wisdom that is manifest through his son Jesus, who has always lived. <clears throat> Jesus is eternal. He is not a created being, and I think this is really important. Um, he is not just something that God made when, when Mary got pregnant. Okay? And the Greek here is monogenes. <laughs> Again, probably don't care, but monogenes. The point here is this means only begotten. And don't listen. So there's, there are some Christian pastors who will say this doesn't mean only begotten, like in the King James. It does. It means only begotten, one of a kind, literally, only generated. <clears throat> but it also means unique. But the author of John says Jesus is eternal. He has always been here, even before the universe was created. That is another big, mind-blowing concept for this period. <clears throat> the synoptics don't really refer to this, but John does. Okay, how are we doing on time, by the way? 39. Okay, 39 in. <clears throat> so <clears throat> let's, let's read the word, because we have to do that. I don't want to just have a prep for the Gospel of John today. And let's read John 1, and we'll break it up. Chapter 1, verses 1 through... Let's do 1 to 28. Who would like to read that for me? 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but all who did receive him believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory and glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace to truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews had sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He said, and answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer out to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor a prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Great, thank you. Reactions? And who is he in this case? John who? John the Baptist. This is important to make a distinction. We're not talking about the author of John. We're talking about John the Baptizer. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. <laughs> if he's not the Christ, then who is he? To lead the way for Christ. Yes, to prepare the way. Accepted. Yep to be accepted, to prepare the way. The Greek here refers to literally pounding down the earth into a smooth road so that someone can <coughs> travel on it. <laughs> right off the bat, you get some, you jump right into the heavy, hardcore, spiritual philosophy, right? This is very abstract. This is very different than the synoptics. What do you take from this? He was convinced. Yes. He is a believer, 100%. He also, he also kind of lays out why he, why he came, why Jesus came. And why is that? To bring grace and truth. Yes. <clears throat> to, to dispel the law, to say the law wasn't enough. Yep, very good. Oh, this is a big one. How would that have gone over in the Jewish community of the first century? Law's not enough. Not very good. <laughs> not very good. On the surface, but I think in the yeah. hearts they probably were like, ah. I, I mean, I, I know for me, mm -hmm. I know that, I mean, I know every little dirty, ugly mm -hmm. part of me, mm -hmm. you know, and they had to too. Mm -hmm. And the law said if you can do all these things perfectly, I know that I can't, right? Even at the highest level of Pharisee or Levite or whoever. 
I love this, and I love this answer because you're both right. From from a religious leadership point of view, it's very dangerous for the for the population to hear this, right? Who's in control of the Jewish religious hierarchy at this point? Priests who believe the law is enough. And in order to atone for your sins, you had to give money to the temple and you had to give food to the priests. You had to support both both um, materially and otherwise the, the religious leadership. If you start telling people that the law is not the only way to salvation, who is the most threatened here? And he names them. Those making a living off of it. Those making a living off of it. Pharisees, right? Religious leadership. But I like the common person to finally hear, I've been trying my whole life and I just can't be right with God. How does that apply to today? Is that applicable to today? But you're in charge of your life, Ken. You're the god of your own destiny. I thought, don't you? Aren't you the one that makes a better future for yourself? The law don't save. Hmm? Only Jesus saves. Mm-hmm. He came to fulfill the law. Nation through Christ, Christ the Messiah. I've heard the phrase, <coughs> the utter relief of holiness. Ah, because it, 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 holiness is is granted. Mm. <clears throat> this is so good. Holiness not earned. It's granted. We earn it, but we don't. We don't earn it. You know these religious leaders. They they're also still waiting for prophets yes. and things to be you know mm. to come true. Mm. And it it would make sense for them to want to investigate this guy that's got suddenly probably hundreds if not thousands of people mm-hmm. following him mm-hmm. around the wilderness. Mm-hmm. So they send their little worker bees out there. Go find out: is this guy really a prophet, <laughs> yep. or is he a flake, or what? What is okay. he? Okay, very good. You know, should we be on board with mm-hmm. this guy? Mm-hmm. Is he going to take some of our power, or yes. what, what's his game plan? Yes. Very good. Do a reconnaissance. Let us know what's going on out there in the desert because we're hearing all kinds of weird stuff. Let's go on. John 1, verses 29, and let's read to verse 42. So the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and said to them, following, and, and saw them following, and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw that he was staying, and they stayed with him for that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Excellent. Thank you. Reactions. He gets right to it. Yep. Here we go. Where the other gospels seem to ease into it a little bit. That's right. The little history of mission. Yep. The birth and mm-hmm. early childhood mm-hmm. of Jesus. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Very good. 
I also like that that I don't know that I ever saw that before, but John said I didn't know who he was. Yep. Until I mean I, I guess I kinda knew that, but I, I don't remember ever mm -hmm. reading. Mm -hmm. I did not know who he was mm -hmm. until God told me who he was. This is this is a little surprising. If you're if you're a Christian and you're you're familiar with the gospels, Luke talks about the fact that when the unborn John was in the presence of the unborn Jesus, he leapt in the womb because he was so excited that he was near the Messiah. But here's my, here's my question to you. John is not the Messiah. John is a human being. And we even know from other accounts that later in John's mission, when he is imprisoned by Herod, he has another crisis of faith where he is like, I don't really know. I'm in prison. I didn't think this was the way the things were going to go. It seems like people are being persecuted right now. He, he talks to one of Jesus' disciples and goes, is Jesus really the, the guy we think he is? So I think it's important to remember that John himself is a human who is still struggling with this. Now, what, what, is, the, what is the famous phrase? A prophet has no honor in his hometown. Okay, let's remember that. Let's remember, too, that Jesus' own family at one point, when Jesus is, is healing people and he's in a house and he's crowded around by his followers, his family comes to the house to say, you've got to come out, dude, and come home. You're out of your mind. Okay? Keep that in mind. His own family were having doubts, right? But they're witnessing the exact same things. Look, his own mother, and we'll read this in a, in a chapter or two, came and said, I need you to perform a miracle. His very first miracle was turning water into wine. So his mom knew that this guy was legit, but he, she was also struggling herself with what was going on, right? We have to remember, no one is perfect. And John himself is even struggling, you can see here. But, but then what happens? Then what happens? Jesus says all the things that he's done, tells him, you know, believe that. He, I mean, yep. Can't remember how, but he tells him, you know, all these healing blind and all this other stuff that he's done. Mm -hmm. What happens? Yep. To believe. But what is specifically? He didn't really know. He was still questioning it. Then what happened? When he baptizes Jesus, what miraculous, amazing event happens? We saw the Spirit descend yes. on him. Mm -hmm. Yes. And here's a question mm -hmm. for you. Yes, sir. Who's normally being baptized mm -hmm. in the, at this time? Yep. It's not Jews. How much time do we got? Yeah, yeah. It's not Jews. It's a symbolic thing that mm -hmm. that you do to a Gentile who's converting to Judaism. That's one answer. The other answer is it is also Jews. So we have to remember that what John was doing was different than the kinds of what we would call baptizing that came before John. It's like three stages. All the way up till John is baptizing, you have ceremonial washing. <coughs> washing by the Jews. So we had these pools in the temple in which people could come and be ceremonially washed, but that was an imperfect temporary thing. Okay? You would be cleansed, you would be made pure again, but you would get dirty. Suddenly John the Baptist comes and for a very brief period, you know, he's doing what what we would call kind of a transitional baptism between traditional Jewish baptism and what we would consider to be the baptism of Jesus, you know, Christian baptism. He's baptizing people into this new reality where he believes that we are in this transition state where the kingdom of God has come and he wants people to be part of this new kingdom, but the Holy Spirit doesn't come upon people here. This is kind of this transitional thing, right? <clears throat> and it would be Jews and it would be Gentiles. It could be both. Now, originally it was just Jews and then, you know, there was very few Gentiles in the beginning. It's really only after Jesus' baptism and the Holy Spirit comes on them and really to some extent after Pentecost, and we'll just keep going this way. This is what I would call Christian baptism. Mm -hmm. This is where now, in a symbolic act, your immersion in water sim symbolizes your immersion in the Holy Spirit, okay? A baptism of fire, we call it. So that's the very short answer to what you asked. But it is important because people were doing this. Now I want to get back to this Holy Spirit thing. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus, say, like a what? Dove. What is a dove? Is that a, is that a, a symbol of war and tyranny? 
It's a symbol of peace. Who were the Jews expecting as a Messiah here? Military conqueror. Right off the bat, slap. This is not what we expected. A symbol of peace, of purity. And what happens to the Holy Spirit? Does it leave? John makes this case here. Sending and remaining. It remained on him. It didn't leave him. This is important. Can you imagine seeing this? I don't even know how I would describe it. Maybe a dove? I don't know. The glory of God coming down and, and resting on Jesus. I'd be like, yeah, that's the guy. <laughs> the doves of, I'll just say it. <clears throat> the doves of the area are a little bit unusual as far as, this is what I hear anyway. They're a little bit unusual as far as birds go because mm-hmm. when they bring their wings forward, they come like way forward. And oh, okay. Like a, like a crescent. Uh, okay. So it might have something to do with the shape. That's cool. Because it's also how they anointed mm-hmm. the priest with oil. They would make that crescent shape uh, okay. when they anointed it with oil. I like that. I learn something new every day. Let's read the rest of John here, and then we can, we can kind of wrap this up. John has a lot to talk about, and I know I'm blasting you with a lot today, and we'll get through a lot of it. We'll repeat some of this. Let's complete it by reading verses 43 to the end, which is 51. Who would like to do that? <clears throat> the next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Beth- Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Great. Here's a few others here as we wrap up. Differences between John and the others. And and in some cases, this might be surprising to you. Um, Let me write them. There's a lot of differences. One, there is no report of Jesus' temptation. You made an allusion to this. In the other Gospels, uh, the writers remark that once Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, he immediately was cast or went out into the desert and was tempted for 40 days by Satan. John passes over this completely. Um, There's no transfiguration. What is the transfiguration? You got it. What is it? Like Moses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Glowing radiance. Yeah. Peter, James, and John go up on a mountain one afternoon, you know, and all of a sudden Jesus is transfigured and the glory of God shines from him like nothing they've ever seen. And, and while this is happening on the mountaintop, they see Moses and Elijah, okay? This is a huge deal. John was one of the people there. He makes no mention of it. One thought here is that, well, it's already been covered. Why should I have to talk about it again? There's no report of the Last Supper. In fact, there is a report of the Passover meal. But not the actual Last Supper itself. There's no parables. What are parables? Jesus used to teach. Yeah. It's stories that Jesus used to explain, right, to explain ideas. He has allusions to things, and he has examples, but he doesn't have parables proper. 
no exorcisms. One of the big things that the other gospel writers talk about is people with unclean spirits coming to, to Jesus and being cured. He would, he would cast the, the demons out of those people. There's no mention of that here. And there's no Sermon on the Mount. This is the famous Matthew 5, you know, blessed are the poor, right? <clears throat> um, I'm not saying that, again, this is, this is not apologetics. This is just making the point that John is very different than the other gospels. But what he does have is what's called seven famous signs. And we'll wrap this up very quickly here. But the idea that there are these miracles that kind of prove Jesus is who he says he is. And, and there's really more than that. If you think of the miracles themselves, there's like nine. But this idea that there's these events, these very specific events, where Jesus performs a very important miracle to illustrate something. Okay? <clears throat> um, let's see here. What else? And I think the last thing here is this idea of his talking about the Judean ministry. So if you read the other Gospels, they talk about Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and we just started hearing about it here, right? But John goes on to be very expansive that before there was this big Galilean ministry, Jesus was down in Judea, in Jerusalem. In fact, John reports about one of the times that the, you remember the the temple, he goes into the temple and there are the money changers there, and he's overturning the tables. Either that happened twice, or it it happened at the beginning as well. So John is kind of expanding on this part about Jesus working in Jerusalem and Judea. That was an important part of this period too. Okay. Any last questions or comments as we wrap up today? I read in the footnote about Nazareth being kind of a crossroads and a Roman garrison being located there and it's just kind of a city that had a reputation that would not have fit with traditional Jewish culture. Ooh, okay. And so when Nathaniel commented mm-hmm. about what good came from Nazareth, yep. there was never anything in any of the, the yep. prophecies, mm-hmm. the prophets about anyone right. coming from Nazareth and his preconceived notion of the people yes. that were in Nazareth yes. was not really good. Love this. I love this. How does that apply to us? Let's wrap up with that. How does that apply to us? California. Okay. <laughs> he just he knew it. He had it right there. California. There was a prophet. There was a prophecy that out of the branch of Jesse. But it's probably there's tons of prophecies people don't think about. Okay. Well, this is John, and John is a remarkable gospel, and we'll get into a lot of this. I know I threw a lot at you today. We'll, we'll talk about it more in the future as well, but I encourage you to read ahead. Um, we'll try and do one chapter a week. There's a lot here, so um, we'll probably take it fairly slow. Um, but as you're reading it, think about these things. Think about what we've talked about today. Who wrote it? Who was it written to and why? And, and you caught it, too, at the beginning here. There was an explanation of what rabbi meant. Um, there's already quoting of scripture from Isaiah. Think about that. Think about the person here who's writing about this. And <clears throat> next week, we'll probably start talking about a gospel that was also being circulated. So one last thing to think about here is that there was false gospels being written at this time. There's a famous one called the Gospel of Thomas. Have you guys heard about that? So it's thought one other reason John is writing this is to contradict that false teaching. Okay, thank you for joining us. See you next week.